Welcome to St. Michael and All Angels to the Rector's Bible Study. Um, I am not the rector, you might have noticed, and so I am filling in for him today. I'm Mary Lessman, and I'm Associate for Spiritual Growth here at St. Michael and All Angels, and I'm really pleased to be with you. And I kind of teased Bev that I might start by doing this because we had a sound issue last time, and I didn't want y'all to, I kind of wanted to tease y'all that we had a sound issue again, but we don't. We're all good, and sound's working fine. Um, I would like to encourage you at this time, if you haven't already done so, to silence your phones so that those won't be a distraction for us during it. And because we could not meet last week because of the ice, I'm glad all of you survived, whatever that looked like for you. Um, we are covering all four chapters. So we would have had two last week and two this week. We're going to do four this week. So my plan is to walk through all four chapters, kind of tell the story and talk a little about where the connections are and what some of these things might tell us. And then I plan on opening up for questions at the end when I've gotten through the four chapters. However, if you've got a burning desire for something in the middle, please feel free to flag me down and I will be happy to answer those for you at that time. Friends, let us start in prayer. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give thanks for this glorious day, for this rain which we can always use. We um, ask that you keep us safe as we are out and about within this weather. We ask that you open your word to us, that you would continue to teach us from the history of your people, that we would draw connections to our own lives, and that in that we would move forward, um, growing more into the people that you've created us to be. All this we ask through your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. All right, let's get started. We're going through chapters um, 15 to 19 today. So I wanted to start by saying, I was listening to the recording of the last class that Ken Brannon did for us, and um, I'm just so struck by all of the dysfunction in David's family, right? So, which is actually kind of reassuring in a way, right? Um, <laughs> if God loves them, then, you know, hey. So, uh, but I wanted to tell you, you know, during seminary, we learned about genograms. And genograms are like family trees, but they note the patterns and the circumstances that occur over several generations in the family, right? So genograms might note that there is a, an issue with alcoholism or some other kind of chemical dependency that passes through the generations. Or it might note that most of the daughters in the family either got pregnant or got married at 18 and are gone. You know, there's kind of, you see all these things. In my family, what we notice is that on my mother's side, there's a pattern of one daughter not marrying and then being the one kind of designated to take care of the parents as they grow older, which is a kind of interesting phenomenon as well. And in all of this is in our family, that's all un unstated. It's not like there's a plan for that, but you just see these patterns recur, right? Then, so that's genograms, where you can kind of see these things passing through generations in a family. And then there's an understanding of dynamics that's addressed in counseling called family systems. Some of y'all might be familiar with family systems. And family systems has some basic tenets. And some of them are that the system wants to stay in stasis. It wants to stay um, 
the same, right? And so change is discouraged and pushed back on. And again, this is not really something people are thinking about. It's automatic. So if you think about a family system as having a rubber band around it, every time someone changes, they're pulling that band in a different direction and everybody else reacts by trying to get that band back to the way that it was before, right? Um, and then you've got the problem of enmeshment where members of the family are too involved in each other's business, right? And so differentiation is this process of establishing personal boundaries so that you can live your life with integrity instead of in reaction to what is the expectation of the people that mean the most to you and the people you love the most, right? You can kind of live out of your own integrity and your own knowing who you are. So when folks don't have clear boundaries, it disrupts the ability of everyone in the system to be healthy. The health of the system, and I, and I often say this when I'm talking about family systems in other places, is that in a family system, if one person in the system gets healthier, the whole system gets healthier. It's really lovely. And so, um, so you don't need everybody to sign on to something. You just need one person in a bad system to decide they need to be better and healthier. And it kind of helps bring up everybody's game if they can handle that pushback that they're going to get from people initially from trying to make a change, right? And so I bring all of that up because I want you to think about that as we walk through all of this stuff that's going on with David and his sons and his family. And I want to remind you that to do nothing is to make a choice. It is not neutral to do nothing. It, it is a choice to do nothing. And what we're seeing is that David's unwillingness to deal with things and to be clear about things is what has led to some of this stuff that's going on in his family as well. His inability or unwillingness to make clear decisions, to communicate them to his family, it, it's the source of all kinds of unnecessary drama and pain. And so the genogram for David's family is really messy. And I want you to think about what you're seeing in those patterns as we go through that today. All of the drama that we're about to explore has its seed in David's killing of Uriah and taking Bathsheba, another man's wife. Whether you see God's direct hand in these events or simply to understand that they are the reasonable consequence of the broken behavior and the family dynamics in David's household, the tragedy that we're about to walk through has its roots in this sin, in this lapse of David's character at this one time. All right, so let's get into our stuff for today. When we last left David's dysfunctional family, Absalom, David's son, had set fire to Joab's field next door so that he could get his dad's attention. Um, it is a classically poor decision to reward bad behavior. Joab actually arranges for him to have an audience with his dad, so his bad behavior worked. And so um, David, they have this exchange. David kisses him. He kind of indicates that he's forgiven without anything really being said, um, and so that he is persona non grata no more. He had had to live away. Now he gets to live here. Now he's no longer estranged from the king's presence, per se. And that brings us into chapter 15. And so Absalom, now back in Jerusalem and kind of hanging around, he starts beginning to politically work the populace. 
it's, it's, it's the equivalent of him going to Iowa and New Hampshire, right? Like he's going to meet the people and shake the flesh and kind of get in on the ground floor so that he can start building his base. He tells people, oh, he comes, they come in the gate and they're coming to Jerusalem to get some of their business handled. And he talks to him, what's going on today? Oh, good. Tell me all about it. And he says, if only I had some power, I could judge your claims fairly and get things settled. It's such a shame the system's not working for you. That's such a shame, right? So he's cultivating relationships with people in this way. And he does this for four years. He kind of lays his groundwork for four years. And then he asks David, hey, dad, can I go and worship at Hebron? Um, but Absalom's plan is to stage a coup and to assume the throne from David. And Absalom even calls for David's advisor, Ahithophel, who's one of David's trusted advisors. And Absalom has himself anointed king at Hebron. Just as you may recall, David was anointed king at Hebron all those years ago. So we're kind of seeing that pattern too. And I think Absalom chose to be anointed there because of the symbolism of the fact that his dad had been anointed there, right? So David gets wind that his son has gone and has done this thing. But he also is warned that Absalom has been working the ground for this for years now and that he's very popular with people and that right now they think he's got the upper hand um, because he's been cultivating this over all of this time. And so David, not trusting that he has the power or the support to defeat Absalom head on, he gathers his army and all the people who are loyal to him, and he flees Jerusalem with those who are faithful to him. And we're told he leaves 10 concubines to guard his house. So I love that. I mean, it's kind of images of the Playboy Mansion, right? I mean, if you thought Hugh Hefner was the first, no, no, no. David's leaving concubines to protect his house, right? So everybody but the concubines head out of town. And David tells the priests who have come with him. So the priests are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, and they're heading out with David's people. And David looks at them, and he says, you know what? You need to take that covenant, the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. That's where it belongs, right? And David says, if it is God's will, I will see it again. And if God is done with me, so be it. And he tells the priest, Zadok, hey, while you're back there with the Ark, keep me informed. The people and I will wait at the edge of the forest, and we're going to wait on your word to let me know what the lay of the land is and what you think my counsel should be on, on how I should handle this. And so I want you to see, we're going to see a lot of examples in this over these chapters we're going through. But David right here starts showing that he's not grasping at just anything that might help him maintain his power and position. He's able to make humble decisions because his trust ultimately rests in God. And this is really the complicated beauty of David, that he is, like all of us, sinner and saint. He's not all good and he's not all bad. We shouldn't all try and live, like, live lives like David, um, thanks be to God. And yet there's something about him that he loves God and that even when he falls short, he kind of continues to come back to God, which is the call on us, right? As we fall, we continue to come back to God. And so we're going to see this over and over that he's kind of got this this humble position about what the outcome of all of this might be. So then we're told, David went up the ascent to the Mount of Olives, weeping as, his, as he went, with his head covered and walking barefoot. 
And all the people who were with him covered their heads and went up, weeping as they went. And so you have this really beautiful pathos picture of him crying, of him being willing to put his emotions and his vulnerability on his sleeve to let his people see that, that he doesn't have to be strong and in control all the time, that this thing that his son is doing to him is hurting him deeply and that um, he's going to let people see that and he's going to feel those emotions and let them move through him. And that's so great because the more he can be real with where he is right now and what he's feeling and what's going on with him, the better his decision are going to be, the better information he's going to get, all of that. So instead of corking it up or trying to put on an image, he's letting it flow. And so at this point, David's made aware that his advisor, Ahithophel, has betrayed him and is advising Absalom. And so David prays to God that Ahithophel's counsel to Absalom would be foolish, which is a kind of benign thing to ask for. You know, I think... um, You know, when I want something done, I'm kind of much more direct with God and I'm kind of not kind about the person who's the agent of the thing that I'm upset about. And in this case, he's not calling down, you know, thunder and fire and whatever on this this man. He's just saying, hey, just make him give bad advice, you know, and I'll take it from there. Right. It's kind of a cute, gentle way of of doing it. Further, David sends Hushai, which is a faithful advisor to him back to Jerusalem and he says go hang in Jerusalem and when Absalom shows up pledge that you will be faithful to him that you are one of the people that are supporting him taking the throne and so then he says hey and if you get inside and you find out anything about what's going on let Zadok the priest know because he's the one who's going to be filling me in on everything so we've got this situation where David has planted a couple moles right and he's getting himself out to safety he's got his people out to safety but he's kind of putting some people in so that he can have some intel so that he can, and again, it's all of those instincts of David as warrior are coming back, right? He has not had to fight his own battles in a long time because the land has been secured. He's been able to send other people out, which is actually part of the problem. It, that is exactly why he saw Bathsheba um, bathing on the rooftop is because he was not out with his army and they were all off at war. And so having that unscheduled, unfocused time on his hand has gotten him in trouble and gotten him in trouble. And here we see him kind of getting back to his um, roots as a warrior, right? So that takes us into chapter 16. And we get this little vignette of Mephibosheth's servant bringing food and donkeys. And so he's dropping them off. And David says, well, why didn't Mephibosheth come himself? And he says, well, his sons stayed. They stayed behind because his son doesn't support you. He supports Absalom. So we're just going to park that because at the end, that's we're going to come back and that story is going to kind of get settled at the end. And then we get this great story of David allowing this cursing against him by um, Shimei. And let me, I'm going to read you this passage. So this is going to be 16, 5 to 14. When King David came to Beharim, a man of the family of the house of Saul came out whose name was Shimei, son of Gera. He came out cursing. He threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. Now all the people and all the warriors were on his right and on his left. Shimei shouted while he cursed, Out! Out! Murderer! Scoundrel! 
The Lord has avenged on all of you the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son, Absalom. See, disaster has overtaken, overtaken you, for you are a man of blood. And then Abishai, who's one of the generals of the army, kind of turns to David and says, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, what have I to do with you, sons of Jer Zariah? These, uh, um, Abishai is the son of Zariah. What do I have to do with you? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? David said to Abishai and to all his servants, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite, right? Let him alone and let him curse for the Lord has bidden him. It may be that the Lord will look on my distress and the Lord will repay me with good for this cursing of me today. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along the hillside opposite him and cursed him as he went, throwing stones and flinging dust at him. The king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan, and there he refreshed himself. So we have this almost Monty Python skit-like scene of this little old man coming out and just like kicking dirt and cursing and spitting and throwing all this stuff on David, and you're getting what you deserve, and you're a bad guy, and da-da-da. And David's guys are going, why, why? Let me cut off all the, you know, all, let me kill this guy. And David's, and, and again, so David's showing, he's like, no, no, maybe God told this man to curse me and maybe God will see my humiliation and that I'm bearing this cursing and will have will find favor with me, right? That will kind of take my side. And so again, we're seeing David kind of take this humble position with all of this. Again, your son, and again, he's got such presence of mind. He says, my son is trying to kill me and take the throne. What do I care about this guy out here in the boonies cursing me and yelling and throwing dirt at me? Like that is small potatoes compared to what's going on, right? So he has this sense of what's important and what's not and how he can redeem his reputation with his people and what things can hurt his reputation with his people. Yes. So Absalom finally, finally, finally arrives in Jerusalem. David's cleared out. Absalom gets to come in. Nobody's really um, trying to keep him from coming in and, and, and taking over, right? So Hushai, who is David's mole advisor, greets him and pledges his loyalty to him, just like David told him to. So that's good, good guy Hushai, right? Then we have Ahithophel, which is the advisor who has now betrayed David and is helping Absalom. Ahithophel, bad guy advisor, tells Absalom, hey, the first thing you want to do is sleep with all your dad's concubines that he left to guard the house, right? It will send a clear sign that you've taken over all that your father held and ruled. And Absalom thinks this is good advice. <laughs> I'm not even going to pull the thread on all of that. But, but So that's where we are. So Absalom takes the concubines up to the roof and slept with them there where all Jerusalem can see. And so I want you to get the strong connection to the story of Bathsheba, where David sees her bathing on the rooftop and he goes and has her brought to him, right? It's times 10. Absalom takes 10 of David's women and puts them out where everybody can see and has sex with them, right? And I also want you to see that here, 
Absalom comes into town, and quite frankly, it probably was not even on his agenda to have sex with all the concubines where everybody could see. That wasn't what he was thinking about. But his advisor tells him to do that, right? And it's the same thing. So we go back to the story last time we were together. Amnon was counseled to rape Tamar. There was a whole, his friend set up a whole story on how you could get all that done, right? Just as Absalom is being counseled to rape his father's concubines, basically. And so that's a very interesting, repetitive vein that's going through this. So Ahithophel, who's now solidified himself as a trusted advisor because he gave the concubine advice and um, Absalom followed it, he says, hey, this is my next move. Let's go after David tonight, right now. I'll take a big army and we'll overwhelm him before he has time to make a plan or to strengthen his troops. And the only one I'll kill is the king. And the people will see that the fight is over quickly and no one will have the spirit to fight you. And plus, a lot of people love you anyway. It's all going to be good. You will solidify your taking of the throne if we go and take care of David quickly. And this sounded like good advice to Absalom. But Absalom decided he needed a second opinion. And that's not a bad thing, you know, that he sought a different opinion. So he asked David's mole, Hushai, what his counsel is. And he kind of says, well, your dad is a valiant warrior. And he's surrounded himself with valiant warriors. Strategically, your dad has surely separated himself from the troops and hidden himself. If you go up against the troops and struggle, it will spread throughout the land and your men will lose heart. Instead, what you should do is gather all the men from all across Israel that support you and lead them into battle yourself. Your overwhelming numbers will give you the advantage you need to find him wherever he may be hiding and to have the sure victory. And so Absalom and his men huddle up and they say, you know what? We like Hushai's counsel. And the line that we get here in chapter 17 is, for the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring ruin on Absalom. So is that our writer's interpretation of what happened? But it is an echo back, right, to David praying for poor counsel. And then we're told that God's intervening in this, in this way. But some of that intervention is because David was astute enough to send another advisor in to act as a mole, right? So I just want us to get that, yes, God might get involved in some of the nitty-gritty details, but he also uses us, and he uses our gifts, and he uses our discernment to lead us to right paths. And that's what I'd like us to think is going on right here. So Hushai now gets away to the priest, Zadok, who's also on uh, David's side, and lets him know about the counsel that he gave Absalom and that Absalom has accepted that counsel. And so the priests send people to warn David and to let him prepare. And they kind of say, David, what you want to do is cross across the Jordan to escape Absalom, who's going to be coming with his men after he builds them up. And then we're told when Ahithophel, remember this is the turncoat advisor, when he saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went off home to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself. This is, this is heavy stuff, guys. This is really ugly, heavy stuff. So Ahithophel's self-worth 
was centered in what his value was to Absalom. And when he felt humiliated or dismissed or whatever it was he was feeling because Absalom didn't take his counsel, he goes into despair and he kills himself. Instead of, so his value is in another man's view of him instead of God's understanding of him as his beloved child, right? He doesn't have his self-worth centered in the right place. And so I want us to see the tendrils of pain and loss and disaster that are branching out from this act of sin and that branch out generally from acts of sin, right? How much sinful loss has happened because Absalom chose not to wait on his time to be king of Israel, but decided to grab it um, from David and that he had this vengefulness against his father. All right, so now we pivot back to David. David's getting some food and supplies from some local folks. And we kind of have several stories of this where his, his army's being held up by these folks and, and served by them. And what I want us to see here is that David has this long history as the successful ruler of Israel. And so he does have some loyal folk out there that are loyal to him and remember that, right? And they are staying true to who the true anointed crown king of Israel is versus the charismatic presence of Absalom, who's gone out and kind of shake the flesh and trying to work the crowd, right? And so, so this is kind of going on as David's preparing for this battle. So after all of this reinforcement, David prepares his troops for battle and he instructs his, his uh, generals as he's about to send them out. He says, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. So if you find him and he's alive, don't kill him, basically, is, is what he's saying, right? Big battle, David's victorious. David's team wins, right? And then we get this story of Absalom riding under a tree and his head is caught. And you know, we've heard the story about Absalom's great hair, but actually the story doesn't say anything about him being caught by his hair. He might have, but it says his head. His head is caught on the tree and his mule continues on. So it leaves him hanging from this tree. He's not, we're not, it's not indicated that he's choking or anything, but he's caught, right? So David's servant later comes by and he sees Absalom, kind of his legs hanging out of this tree. And so he goes to Joab, one of David's military leaders, and he says, well, his general. And he says, um, tells him what happened. And Joab's like, you should have killed that guy when you saw him. And the servant says, absolutely not. I heard the king instruct you not to harm him. If I killed him, you just would have turned on me and I would have been left holding the bag. So I'm not getting involved in that. So Joab says, fine, I'm going to handle it myself. So Joab spears Absalom in the heart, and while he's still hanging there, Joab has 10 armor bearers come in and join him in piercing and killing Absalom. So in essence, they are um, spreading the guilt. And so nobody actually knows who made this, the fatal stab, but they're all going after him, right? And they bury Absalom's body out in the forest. So David is waiting all this time. The battle's been fought, the battle's been won, uh, Absalom has been found and he has been killed. And so a, a courier comes and runs to tell David, 
you've been victorious. Our army won. It's all great. And the sentinel and David see him coming from far off. And so they know they, they're bringing, he's bringing a report. Um, and this man falls prostrate in front of the king. And he says, blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my Lord the king. And David's very first response to this news is, is it well with the young man, Absalom? So his first thought is, what's going on with my son? What's going on with my son? And the messenger confirms, there's kind of a two-part thing here, but basically the messengers who come confirm that Absalom has been killed. And David begins like keening. Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son. So he's crying, he's keening, he's grieving the death of his son. And Joab hears that David is acting like this, that he's doing this public display of tears for his traitor son. And so Joab is a bit put out. And Joab comes to him and he, um, oh, and so what happens is word spreads to the troops. So the troops have been out fighting this battle for David and winning. And they're starting to now come back to their base camp to be with David and to seal their victory, right? And as they're coming back, the word of how David is grieving Absalom's death and crying and calling out for him gets to the troops. And so to match his mood, the army kind of returns quietly, almost ashamed, instead of kind of returning victorious as would normally be the case. And so Job goes out to David and he says, you are shaming your people. You are shaming your family with this display that you are putting on. You're showing your commanders that they mean nothing to you. You are more sad that Absalom is dead than if all of us had died defending your kingdom. Get out there and show your appreciation of your troops, or so help me, they're all going to desert you. And David takes his counsel, and he blows his nose, and he puts his big boy pants on, and he gets out there, and he starts, right? And he lets them know his, his gratitude and what has happened. And you know what? This little speech from Joab might have been just a little kick in the pants that David needed, because it really, now we're going to see a pivot from this so focused on Absalom, so focused on trying to keep this thing from getting to be a total disaster. And now he's just kind of accepting what has happened and he's pivoting and, and moving on. So Absalom is dead. The king and his, and his army and his supporters are still hanging out in the forest. The leadership in Jerusalem has not invited him to return. So I guess this is kind of a thing, right? Like you've gone out and there's a little question about whether you're going to be in charge when you come back. And so I guess maybe tradition was that word would be sent out to David inviting him to bring himself back and bring his army back and kind of ride into town victorious, right? Well, they're waiting and they're waiting and nobody's sending them the invite, right? So um, David sends word to the priest Zadok and he says, hey, what gives? Are you guys not loyal to your king? Why aren't you calling me to return to my throne? And it's then we get this story of Shimei, the Benjaminite. That's the guy who cursed, right? The Monty Python skit, the guy who's walking down the road next to him, cursing and kicking dirt and all that stuff. And he brings his whole tribe of people out and they prostrate themselves before David. And he asks David for forgiveness. He says, I'm sorry, I was cursing you and saying all that stuff. And I've gotten, I've gotten religion. I've gotten Jesus. And I would like you to please, you know, forgive me for what I did. And one of David's men says, looks at David and says, shall we put him to death? 
So again, the mood is everybody's really quick to say, should I just kill this person, right? It's kind of their first line of defense. Um, but David pardons him. And he's saying, this is a good day. We won the battle today and no one else is going to die today. No, we're not. I'm going to accept his, his apology. Then Mephibosheth, remember his servant had brought out donkeys and food and stuff to David. And he kind of said, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to be talking behind his back, but he didn't come because he's really, you know, supporting Absalom. So he comes to David and he says, that servant of mine that brought you all the stuff I sent you, he lied about me not supporting you. But David, you've always been good to me. And so I know you have to choose which story to believe. Whatever you think is best is, is fine. And David says, okay, and this was all a story about inheritance, that he had given the servant rights of inheritance because he was supporting David and the family wasn't. And David says, you're going to split the inheritance between yourself and Ziba, your servant who brought me this stuff. So they each get something. Nobody's left not holding something, right? So we have these scenes on the backside of the battle where David is given the chance to be magnanimous and gracious, and David does so. So instead of putting his foot on their throats and kind of finishing them off while they're down, he forgives them. And so he makes them loyal to him. And so after he rewards all of these who provided for him and his troops when they were tired and hungry, he does that. So we wrap up this kind of happy ending of David being restored to his throne after he was challenged by his son Absalom. And in this whole tragedy, we see this glimpse now at the end of this renewal of David's character. David, who had kind of put himself up in his walls of his castle and was no longer having to fight for his position and was kind of being able to just live off the largest of his kingdom, right? He'd gotten a little slow and lazy. And so this, we got to kind of get to see this renewal in him, this willingness of him to be influenced by his people and by his advisors. Um, and so we get to see this glimpse of that man, that young David, who was a man after God's own heart, right? All those years ago. And so now I'm going I'm to wrap up. That kind of gets us through our four chapters of, of content. But I want to tell you a couple things. It's estimated that Absalom was 29 years old when he died, when he was trying to do this coup against David, and that David was 61. So I kind of want you to have that mental picture. Solomon is believed to have been nine years younger than Absalom. So he would have been 20 when all of this was going on. David dies nine years later at the age of 70. Solomon is then appointed king at the age of 29, the same age that Absalom was when he was killed, trying to take over the, the throne. So there's a little poetic timetable there and what's going on in, in David's family and David's line. And there is this scripture reference that David has 21 sons. Solomon was the youngest of his and Bathsheba's sons. They had other sons. And so I want you to get that just as David was the youngest of all of his brothers to assume the throne, so Solomon is the youngest of his brothers, and he's the one chosen. And again, this is not unusual. We've seen this pattern with God, right? That he doesn't always choose the first. He doesn't always choose the most beautiful. He doesn't always choose the smartest. God chooses who he chooses, and then he helps empower who he chooses to live into the call that he's placed upon him.
Absalom, so we're kind of we're kind of finishing the cycle of Absalom here, right? We've had quite a few chapters here where he's been a major player. He is a chip off the old block. He's handsome as David is. He's political savvy as David is. He's charismatic as David is. It's all very cats in the cradle, don't you think? You know, that, that Absalom was such a chip off the shoulder off the old man. There is the implication that David has lost his edge. And Absalom, because all of that talk at the gate, you know, if my dad had this, this kingdom running the way it's supposed to, oh, we'd be able to solve all your problems and everything could be taken care of. I wish I had more authority so that I could make those things happen for you, right? So there's this implication that Absalom sees an opening to push his timetable and to step into his future because he doesn't think David is operating the way he should. We talked at the beginning about David's lack of clarity and kind of communication with his family and especially these sons. The whole things that he he doesn't hold Amnon responsible really for the rape. He doesn't um, embrace his daughter Tamar who was raped. He doesn't do anything to kind of heal that. He leaves Absalom kind of hanging. You're exiled for a while because you killed your brother. Now we're kind of okay, but it's not really official and you don't have any duties. A lot of He's leaving a lot of question marks. It's really messy. Um, if, he had, if he had brought Absalom into the trade, to learn the trade, so to speak, right? Given Absalom a role. If he had continued to run a tight ship in regards to the kingdom, this coup attempt may have been avoided. It might have never happened, right? And all of this, again, goes back to David's original sin, his taking of Bathsheba and his killing of Uriah. His, David's un- ambivalence, his unwillingness to make hard decisions, dealing with Abnon, dealing with Absalom, it comes out of this place where he is so knowledgeable of his own great sin. And so what David's kind of thinking, I'm projecting this onto him, is who am I to make judgments and pronouncements when I've done the same things or worse? So it keeps him from being in a, you know, the clear moral compass that drove David when he was a young man has now been clouded over by his power and his boredom and his laxity and his sin. And so he he is in this murky place where he's not seeing moral clarity in black and white anymore. And so what that means is he's just not acting and making decisions with moral clarity because he knows his own brokenness and sin that clearly still haunts him, you know, as part of all of this. And so we kind of see this same pattern in people and societies over and over that once strong rising countries will become weak and corrupted and decadent, right? There's a normal arc to earthly realms and powers that inevitably draws toward decline and corruption. And it's one of the many reasons that we cannot place our hope in worldly systems or powers. And David's love for his wayward children, another point I want to make, Um, a, a child who rapes his sister, a child who tries to kill him and take his throne. His continuing love for them is familiar to any of us who have strained relationships with our adult children. And it's also, I mean, so we can see, it doesn't, those of you who are in the throes of this know, it almost doesn't matter what your child does, you are never gonna stop loving them. You're never gonna stop trying to make the path before them easier. You're never gonna stop hoping and praying that 
they have a transformation and that they become healthier or, or whatever is dealt with, right? And so it's a model for God's love for us that regardless of how badly we get it wrong or how far we've strayed, we are beloved of God. Always, always, always. David is an adulterer and a murderer. He is a ditherer and he's an incompetent father. And he is beloved of God. He is beloved of God. You know, in baptism and transfiguration, in this, those stories in scripture, right, God tells us, I am well pleased with him, right, with Jesus, his son. He's saying, I am well pleased with him. And we get this. Who wouldn't be? You know, it's Jesus. Jesus is obedient. Jesus is sinless, right? But because Jesus is obedient and sinless, there's kind of this space in there where we can question, yeah, but am I, I truly beloved? Is God well pleased with me? Because, you know, I ain't no Jesus. I've looked in the mirror and I know and I've seen my life and I ain't no Jesus. So does he really love me as much as he has professed that he loves this child? But David is a hot mess and he is beloved of God. And so this should vanquish any doubts that we have about our worthiness to be God's beloved child. Thank you. All right. That's a lot of material. Do we have any questions, thoughts, concerns? Yeah. Well, well let me ask you this question. Uh, so David has his flame with Bathsheba and according to tradition that he writes Psalm 51. Hmm. Says, have mercy on me, a broken and contrite heart. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. But the but the psalm doesn't really resolve itself. It doesn't go on, and, and where where God interjects and says, "This is my beloved son. This is my beloved David." David needs beloved, right? But mm -hmm. but God doesn't say, "You're forgiven. It's okay." So isn't it isn't what really happens here? At least it seems like to me that after that. David just sits there with a broken and contrite heart. He's like sunk into depression. Yeah. So he therefore he's just not doing anything because he's still sitting there, you know, crying in his fear, feeling yeah. sorry for what he has done. Yeah. Maybe feeling sorry for himself. But doesn't that explain his passivity? So we the question is about um David. <laughs> Whether, I'm going to kind of paraphrase and say that, you know, Psalm 51, we understand is David's um, kind of confession and, and, and plea after, after the incident with Bathsheba. Now, remember, Nathan shows up to David right afterwards and he tells him the little story and he says, you're the man. And, um, and David right, right away says, I've sinned before God. So David doesn't try and avoid, hey, I'm king. I can have whoever I want. He didn't, he didn't try and justify what he did. He admitted right away, right? But there is this thing where he admits it. He expresses through this Psalm 51 his contriteness about this, his remorse. And yet it, what it sounds like is that he didn't totally take in God's forgiveness. He didn't totally, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, uh, sorry, it'll come to me. It's an A word. <laughs> um, take that on, right? And so I, that, I think you're right. And so I think moving forward from that space where he had confessed that sin, but yet it seems like hadn't totally resolved that God had forgiven him for it, knew that there were consequences. The child died. 
Um, and he tried to keep the child from dying. And then once the child was dead, he's like, it's done. God's done what he's done. I got to move on. Right. So there's kind of this image of David kind of moving on from that. And yet it keeps showing up in all these things and all these ways that he's relating to his children, his kingdom, his rule. All of that is impacted by this fact that he really hasn't owned that forgiveness. And that's really a great image for us to hold close because how are we not accepting God's forgiveness? How do we continue to hold on and bring out and nurse the ways that we have fallen and fallen short in the past that we've acknowledged and we've given over to God and yet we still feel shame or guilt or loss or something around that when we think about it. And so that that needs to continue to be healed by the assurance of God's forgiveness. Um, because we need those things not to have a hold on us so that they don't impair us in our relationships and in our decisions moving forward. Great question. Thank you. Anything else? All right, friends. Well, it's been great to be with you today. Chris will be back next week and he will be with you for all of the classes for the rest of the semester. And so um, thank you for letting me be with you today. I appreciate it.